Hi, I'm Ben Weaver-Hinks. I'm Zachary Fall. And I'm Nadia Cavell. And you're listening to Migratives, the podcast championing migrant creatives in the UK. In this week's episode, we speak to Christina Murdoch, an American actor, writer and opera singer based in London. Her one-woman show, Dangerous Giant Animals, performed a highly praised run at the Edinburgh Fringe and has since toured internationally. We chatted about her journey from opera to theatre, disability and access within the arts, and the life-changing impact of the COVID pandemic. Hello! Hi, Christina. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's lovely to hear you. Thanks again for uh, accepting to be our guest. Oh, I'm honored. So you're from San Francisco. Uh, You studied in California, New Hampshire, and London, where you now normally live, although I understand you're now in San Francisco. Yes. Yeah. So I grew up in the heart of San Francisco in the Richmond District, um, Mm -hmm. which is just about a few blocks away from the ocean. So I grew up in a lot of fog. (laughs) 300 days out of the year, it's foggy. And you can literally drive about 20 streets into the city and it'll be sunny. And then you drive back into the fog. Wow. Then I went to boarding school in New Hampshire at 14 for, for all four years of high school. I actually spent my senior autumn term in England where I studied Shakespeare and British history. And then... I went to college at the University of Redlands in Southern California, kind of in between LA and Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. And then I studied opera in Vienna, Austria. And then I made my way to London five years ago. And currently I am in Monterey, which is two hours south of San Francisco. If I may ask, why why Vienna, um, Christina? Yeah, so I got a scholarship to study abroad for a whole year and... <laughs> The only language that I really kind of knew was German. And so the options were uh, very slim, but also I was getting an opera degree. And so Vienna was the best choice for that. And so I went there for a year. And then after I graduated college, I went back on my own as a tourist and studied with my master opera teacher there and was preparing to get a master's in opera and do the whole career And then um, my time ran out after about a year. I came back to the Bay Area and then realized, oh, yeah, being an opera singer is kind of like I I hadn't fully realized what the career actually was like, if if I'm honest. I think I was studying the art form and I was just following that path. And it was so much a part of my identity. I'd been a singer since I was eight years old um, and I could sing opera. So I did. And then I was about, yeah, like 22, 23 back in the Bay Area and the only opera singer I knew versus in Vienna where everyone's an opera singer. Um, (laughs) It's like the norm and here it's the exception. And it just kind of, I don't know, that mature wisdom came in and I was like, oh wait, I don't, I don't want this career. I love the art form, but I think about it like a, maybe a ballerina, like someone Mm -hmm. who loves ballet, but doesn't want to be a professional ballerina. Well, it sounds like you were, supported and you know very much encouraged to pursue art and to travel even if that was necessary for it yes yes so my mom um was a professional modern dancer ah mine too what (laughs) (laughs) 
like we might have had this conversation in the cloakroom as well. Yes, probably. Yeah. Uh, uh, just to clarify, we, we were in the cloakroom together because we worked there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is how we, that is how Christina and I met as ushers. Yes, as ushers yeah, at the Royal Court Theater. <laughs> just to clarify, so a modern a modern dancer, amazing. So tell us a bit more about how that was growing up as a, a modern dancer mom. Yeah. Well, so I think it's a bit sad, but she stopped dancing. You know, she was, I think, 30 when she met my father. And so she had pretty much stopped dancing around that age. But she studied at NYU, the Tisch School in New York City, um, and had danced with a few companies, but really had spent like, yeah, since she was a teenager dancing. And so she was really supportive of my artistic endeavors and desires and um, has been the whole time through all the ups and downs and the roller coaster that this life puts you on. And so I think that's that's been a huge thing. Um, I was I did it like a career day alumni talk um, for the summer program that I did that got me into boarding school. And I had to kind of confront that, like how much of a privilege it is that I had a parent who was an artist and supported my artistry. Um, I've always been aware of it, but it was, yeah, something that I've just thought about more and more, um, how that hasn't been a hindrance. Yeah. I was just going to say how so many families have that element of pressure to, to do a certain thing with your life. Yeah, I agree. It's like we don't realize how much of a privilege it is until we meet others who have had to go against their families yeah. quite literally and, you know, separate themselves from them just to be able to pursue this. Yeah, I've got my hand up there. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it was very, very hard to break away from what was expected. But also like my mother, she she would have wanted to train as a pianist and she was on the footsteps of the conservatory when she was in her early 20s and then she turned back and did an audition just because she didn't have the encouragement she needed to actually trust that she could even try. Oh, wow. I wonder, wow. like, with your mom, you said she, she stopped dancing at some point. Do you feel like that's something she regretted? Or do you feel there was a pressure in a way no. when you pursued art? No. No, no it's, not, it's not that classic parent story. <laughs> good. No, good. My, mother, my mother's <laughs> never played the role of, like, like in Gypsy, you know, the musical. It's, yeah. She's never um, been that overbearing, I need to live vicariously through you. Um, no, I think it's been more, again, another real gift of her, her knowing how much it brought to her life to pursue an artistic endeavor and how much I loved it. And yeah, she's just so supportive of it and never devalued it. Never devalued it. Wonderful. So you studied opera, like you said, and then you moved to study acting in London. Yeah. When you came to London, was it with the intention of staying abroad? Yeah. So I was in New York um, and wanted to go to drama school. And I'd applied the year before and didn't get in anywhere I wanted to. So I was, I'd moved to New York kind of to be closer to the industry. And um, since I'd given up opera when I was about 23, I then took about five or four years to transition into acting. So then I was in New York and I was like taking acting classes and I had heard about Central and didn't apply to the year before. So I applied, I then got in and a lot of people were like, you shouldn't go. Oh, really? Because like drama school and school, yeah, is all about your network and you need a visa to stay. 
you know, the government had gotten rid of the two years extra that you would get if you went for graduate school. Mm-hmm. So you had to get this like entrepreneur visa to stay. It was, it was just really tough. And a lot of my friends were like, why, why would you go when you have to leave in a year? And I thought about it and I was like, yeah, but I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> why, Christina, why was your heart so set on London? I'm an adventurer. I'm an adventurer. So part of it was like, well, it's a year in London and I can always come back to New York and be a jobbing actor. Mm. You know, I can always go work at a restaurant and then go on auditions. That's always an option. It's not always an option to study in London. When I was here um, in London uh, in high school, I really fell in love with the country. We drove all over um, the UK and saw so many parts of it that I just kind of fell in love with the land and the people and the culture. So I knew that I'd wanted to go back. And then definitely the the draw of, I feel like England is is the, the motherland of Western theater. So that was really exciting to me to, to get trained in, in the land of Shakespeare. Yeah. And the British training is highly respected in the States as well, isn't it? Yes. I was going to say, yeah, the training was definitely respected. It was more, again, just the practicality of, well, you probably can't stay, so why go? And I'm like, well, because I want to. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I did. And then, so in the first month of training at Central for the MA in acting, it's almost like a, a boot camp. Um, you have a lot of intensity for the physical movement classes. Um, and then I forget some of the acting classes. And it was on day three where we did this exercise. And I just remember being like, oh, this is why I'm here. You know, just that that alignment moment where you're like, yes, this is why. Yeah, I'm so glad I'm here. And I kept having that moment throughout my training because I'd had a lot of American acting training in night classes and weekend classes. Um, so it was really refreshing to have the British style of pedagogy uh, when it comes to theater and acting. And I just soaked it up and fell in love with it, really. Mm. Can you just briefly summarize for those who maybe don't know the difference, what, what that difference was? In terms of like a social etiquette, in terms of the two countries, like the U.S. is kind of, and, and I say this as a coastal person, right? I've lived in New York City and I've lived in California, mm-hmm. you know, um, so those places have their own culture. And that culture in general, I think in America tends to be outward expression, mm-hmm. not really holding back. Um, versus what I've experienced in the UK is don't make a fuss. Like don't make a fuss is the inbred emotional culture kind of mantra. Like don't make a fuss. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is kind of diametrically opposite, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So then in terms of theater, I found it really interesting. Whereas the performing arts in terms of like theater, TV and film in America in general is more commercial and is more like shiny and polished and showy. And then I got to London and it was gritty and it was weird and it was like funky and, and just edgy, right? Like the in your face theater, what is it? A decade, you know, of Sarah Kane. Mm -hmm. That blew my mind when I learned about that in drama school, you know, Zachary and I were ushers at the Royal court that like the Royal court does really, edgy interesting stuff sometimes yeah 
Yeah, it, it's definitely a theater that takes risks, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and so I just loved the risks. Um, and drama school exposed me to that. Just this very different way of thinking, the European influence of movement and clowning. I just soaked it all up. It was it was so refreshing to me. Whereas in America, it was a lot mm. about, and again, this is not in general, this was just what I was exposed to. It was a lot about like, look perfect, look pretty. Mm, like, yeah it just seemed like there was a lot of an, like a narrower scope of what was deemed good. Mm. Um, whereas London had just, again, a broader range of, yeah, let's get funky. Like let's get unpolished. I don't know. That, that could also just be my friend theater experience. No, that resonates. I mean, I, I hope that's still the case here. Like I think maybe, maybe a lot of us worry that it's going in a different direction, but yeah, that definitely resonates. I definitely feel the American commercialism yeah. seeping its way. For sure. Yeah. For yes. sure. Yeah. yeah. And so how did you feel received by the industry once you graduated? Well, let's just say um, I don't think I've been, have I, I don't think I've been cast in anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been like four years. Um, yeah. And when I've been cast, I've been cast as an American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I've never gone up for any major theater um, audition. I did have um, a tiny audition for The Crown last year for like a New Yorker. (laughs) I mean, it was so funny because I hadn't auditioned throughout the two years of my show. And then I got a Crown audition and I was like, oh my gosh, like way to throw me in the deep end. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Then I realized doing a solo show actually gave me really good muscles for auditioning. Mm. So, um, and I didn't, I didn't get it. You won't be seeing me on the ground, <laughs> but I, I, I think it's a huge hindrance, honestly, which is really why I've gone the direction of creating my own work because the American plays that happen in London, they don't like to cast. I don't think the industry likes Americans and they don't like to cast Americans, even in American plays. Mm. Well, Christina, I think it's not just Americans. <laughs> Right. It's partly why we're doing this podcast because there is something about British theater which is very exclusive. Yes. Yeah. And we're trying to understand why that is. And I I wondered when you were training, where did you get to train to do an RP and have you ever been seen for a British part? No. I've never been seen for British part. I did have a bit of RP training, but like as much It was just a few weeks, you know, as much as we had for an American accent. I then had to advocate to do our first show with me in a British accent because everyone was kind of doing their own accents. And I was like, well, then I want to do a British one. And I got a lot of pushback. And fair enough. Like, I I do think maybe the role suffered a bit because I was so concerned with my accent. It's funny that you say you only got a few weeks for a British accent and that wasn't deemed enough for you to do a British accent. Whereas the British actors got a couple of weeks to do an American one and that's deemed enough for them to be like, yeah, you can do an American. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say, I think the, the tough answer is it's a total hindrance. You know, my agent is like, whenever you can learn that RP would be great because I would love to put you up for more. But Christina, the agent says that, but you know, I got my RP to a really good level where I was having a couple of auditions in RP where people were telling me, you know, you sound more British than I do. It's now not what it used to be because it's very rusty now. 
But I then submitted a voice reel to this quite high-end voiceover agency and they got back to me and it was a mix of all my languages, including my British and American accents. And they were just like, we just want an exclusively French voice reel, like forget the British. She will never, ever be seen for British parts or voices. It's just sort of ruled out. Like I know some people who are not British have been acting in in British roles, but there are so few. Yeah. On the one hand, I get it. You know, it's a small country compared to other countries. And so I don't disagree with wanting to put your own citizens kind of first for things. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I do think, especially when it's like a, a foreign production, including an American production, you're like, wouldn't you want the best talent? Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's one that I just kind of sit with and then I avoid by making my own work. <laughs> Literally, my always my first question when you're not a UK citizen is, oh, what's your visa? Mm. Yeah. Because the barrier to entry is so high. You know, getting a visa for the past four years um, was so... Okay, I say so. It, it was difficult, but let's be honest. Like, it was a choice. Immigration is is a big spectrum, but it, it's a big deal for so many other people, you know, as refugees or trying to yeah. immigrate to a different country. This was really like, Oh, I would like to live in the UK. Not like I have to. So yes. I say this with a grain of salt. Um, so even for someone who is like middle-class white woman, American, like I have friends in drama school who were from Colombia and they had to go to the police department. Really? Because Colombia is on the list of countries that that happens for. So it's like, I'm feeling the stress of this and the challenge of this. I cannot imagine without all these privileges, what this would feel like. Yeah. Then you like, you know, you get your immigration sorted out if you can. And then you're like, okay, I'm here. I'm ready to work in the industry and, and give you my gifts and blood, sweat and tears. And they don't want it. So you have to go off and do your own thing. And did you feel more welcome than when you turned to writing? Or do you feel there's still some clashes there? Or resistance, maybe? I see it as kind of two different prongs. Like to be a classic actor, which is just to, you know, go on auditions, um, hone your craft, but really be auditioning and trying to get in other people's productions is just a very hard route. I mean, I have British friends that are struggling, right? Like yeah. it's just it's just a tough time. And this is before the last six months, but fringe theater and the whole fringe community, I think is the answer and kind of the counterweight. Like as an American, I could put on a show with a fringe and it could get an award and it could sell out. And my Colombian friend now has founded a theater company working on like Latinx plays and is doing so well in London because he's been able to find his niche because fringe doesn't have these barriers to entry. You know, you can create your own work and there's such an audience for it. Yeah, definitely. And you ended up also writing your own work, starting with Dangerous Giant Animals, which is about your experience being the sister of a sibling with a disability. How did that impact you growing up and how did that impact those decisions we've just been talking about on the traveling and the studies? I mean, it's something I think I'll continue to unpack for most of my life, just in the sense that when you have kind of anything that's so major in your family or in your um, childhood, I find that it, you know, affects you. So I really kind of 
uh, break this down in my show of what was it like growing up with Kate, my younger sister. I also have an older sister. Both my older sister and I are uh, able-bodied and neurotypical. And those are the terms that uh, I use. They are not, you know, we're, we're still not agreed upon, I think, as a society of what terms to use. So I, I just want to add that caveat. Mm-hmm. But our younger sister, Kate, is severely disabled. And the show, bring, it's it's a memory play and it, it dives into what I remember being the experience of growing up with her and my relationship to her and really just a love story to Kate. So there's that aspect of what it was kind of like and how it affected me. But then also on a personal level, because um, I think about this quite a lot, <laughs> like I feel like if Kate weren't in my life in the way that she is, you know, if she weren't disabled and had such big needs, I'd be way more selfish. (laughs) And I already am selfish. So I'd be way more selfish. And I think just unaware, you know, a friend and I came up with this phrase of like being raised on range. Hmm. Um, And I think we really expanded the range of experiences that I had growing up with her. I guess what I mean to say is I don't even know how much it's impacted me because it's my normal. Yeah. And I spend my whole life kind of divulging that and breaking that down and exploring that. So then when I was 14, I went to boarding school and the same year, my older sister went to college. So we both left home mm-hmm. and then my younger sister, Kate was still at home. And then it was about two years later that my parents divorced. And then two years after that, she went into a group home but it was very hard for me to be across the country and for my sister, my older sister to be across the country. But that was also just like where our lives were diverging. Yeah. And kind of since then, we, we live really separate lives. And Kate normally comes home every other weekend to be with my parents. And so I would see her on holidays and things, but she doesn't really get FaceTime and she's kind of in her own world. And a lot of like the processing and therapy in my teenage and twenties was just kind of coming to a place of acceptance that we are not kids anymore. We can't just go play in the front room um, before dinner or after dinner that she grew up just like I have and her life is really different. And then when we can connect, we do. But I think about that, especially with doing my show and connecting to other siblings and families, Mm -hmm. how different it is that I'm able to live across the world from her and have a really separate life from her. Um, because so many families and siblings don't have that luxury, you know, that even to even have um, the person find a great living situation for them and be in a group home, you know, they're right. still at home. Like I have a friend who her life is taking care of her two disabled brothers. Right. Mm-hmm. That is her life. And she, she took over from her parents who are still alive, but that's her life. And, mm-hmm. and so that's, her whole identity. Yeah. I wonder if you had growing up and sort of through your teens and maybe early 20s, if there were any stories like your own that you mm. saw and related to. No, I didn't know any stories. I remember learning that a girl in choir had a disabled, I think, brother who was like in a wheelchair, quadriplegic. Um, I think had a feeding tube. So very different to Kate. Like Kate is mentally about one years old, but she's very physically abled. Mm. So she has a lot more like cognitive and developmental disabilities. 
and has some cerebral palsy, but like she can walk and she can definitely run and she can kick <laughs> and she can, mm. she can swim. She can horseback ride just kind of like a, a giant toddler is what I try to have people mm. picture her as. Right. So no, I didn't, I didn't know any stories. And I remember saying to the girl like, Oh my gosh, I have a, I have a sister with disabilities. And then the girl was kind of like, it was one of those moments where she was shell shocked and kind of like, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. Like, I don't want to connect oh. with you about that. Not, I don't even know if it was shame. It was just kind of like, Whoa, that's just alien to me to like talk to someone about that. It wasn't something she was ready to share with others. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. We were, we were not quite teenagers yet. So mm. we weren't quite in that self-consciousness, but that was the only connection. And then Kate's friends at school, I know that like I would be around them when there were birthday parties or whatever. And I, I laughed when you asked the question because <laughs> I came across this book, you know, I'm at my parents' house right now and we're going through the garage and things from childhood. And there's this book that was like for children or no, for siblings of special needs. Mm. And it goes through the like 10 emotions that you might feel with these really like nineties illustrations <laughs> and kind of like kid narrative. And it's really sweet. And I, I, I look at it and I'm like, wow, like this is like the only kind of reference I had to the experience kind of at, on a zoom out level. Right. Because when you're a kid, you just, you're in the world you're in. You don't know what that world is comparatively. You're just like, okay, this is my world. This is my family. This is how we treat each other. This is what happens. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, to your to your question, Ben, I really didn't know any other sibling stories. And I don't know if you know this, Zachary, but when I did my show, probably 20% of my friends knew about Kate. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Because not like from me trying to keep her from them, but just when do you talk about your siblings as an adult? Mm. You know, unless you're visiting the nieces or nephews um, or unless, you know, they're really in your immediate life. But yeah, I just didn't talk about that much. Yeah, I guess we do only speak of our families to our close friends. Yeah. And then I, yeah, I would be remiss not to admit that part of it's protection and privacy and just like my best friend is a widow and I know that she is careful about who she tells because she often has to explain it and receive reactions, which are often like full of tears and full of just like shock, mm. you know, cause she was a widow at like 26. Wow. Yeah. Was it like similarly to that first girl's reaction who you mentioned when you were 14? Is there something as well in terms of how people react and relate to you after yeah. you bring it up? Yeah. Because of the lack of, well, education on, on those things, people don't know how to take it or how to interact or if they should change their behavior? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's that's the crux of it, right? Is that to your question again, Ben, like we don't have enough of a critical mass of stories mm -hmm. about disabilities from people with disabilities which, you know, should be the first thing. They are the source. It is their life, their experience. And then people like me who are tangential to that. So family members or guardians or best friends mm -hmm. or partners. And so we're still in this kind of unconsciousness around it, I think. It's like something we're aware of that can happen in life. But it's so segregated from our society that we just don't know how to handle it is my experience. And so part of 
when I did my show, I all of a sudden like outed myself as a sibling and I dealt with kind of getting a lot of attention for it and being in these conversations where I had never been in before. It was like, Oh, you're a sibling. Like, what is that like? And how do I explain my sister to people? And how do I get comfortable with the whole range of reactions that people have? How do I explain it? Like, again, we don't even agree on the language. Um, it hasn't even been set. Like what words you use? Like, am I able-bodied, uh, mm. neurodiverse, neurotypical, disabled, like handicapped, right? Handicap in America is kind of still okay. But my understanding is in the UK, it's, it's really derogatory. Um, yeah. Yeah. And as a storyteller and after doing my show in different communities and different countries, it just started to open this whole awareness to me of no wonder things are so uncertain and unknown and unaware because it's still not even on the table. Mm, You know, people with disabilities are still not even included in any major way. They're still on the fringe. They're still ignored. So we just don't know. I think it's honestly comes down to a lot of just, we don't have the data. We don't have the information. So how can you even begin to integrate and to get practice in talking about it? Mm -hmm. As I was doing my show and I had to have a lot of conversations. I mean, let alone like marketing the show. Like how do you market a show as like a sibling of disability? Do you use the D word in your, in your mm, marketing copy? The D word, my God. The D word. And then, well, cause I, mm. I started realizing it is a thing because in mm. all one-on-one conversations at dinner parties or what, whatever, wherever I was networking and chatting with people, you know, they'd be like, Oh, this is my friend, Christina. And she has this show. I had to get really comfortable with being able to describe Kate in like one minute and to be able to talk about the show in a few minutes. But yeah, whenever I dropped the D word, people would just in general, just completely change their demeanor. You know, it's, it's a signaler. It's like a, Whoa, what did you just say? Like, Whoa, what are we talking about now? Oh, it's serious now. And it was a really striking moment at a dinner party where this older gentleman in London, I told him about my sister And he said something like, well, what happened in the birth? Or why is she that way? Right. And when I'm connected to someone who is marginalized and vulnerable in our society, who's not integrated and um, protected, you realize that compassion is one of your best tools because you're just going to walk around offended and upset all the time, you know, by people's ignorance. So I realized when he said that, I could have been like, what the, like, yeah. <laughs> you are out of line. Like, oh my God, I am walking away. But I keep, and part of the reason why I felt so passionate about this work is I'm like, well, that's a teaching moment. You know, that's a moment where I get someone who goes, you know, it was a tell for him of this is his only awareness mm. that, that something would have happened in the birth and that there's something wrong with my sister and what made it go wrong. And what I really sensed in that moment was he's terrified of this. And so he needs to know how it happened so it doesn't happen to him. Yeah. Like what or who was to blame. Right. Right. It's like, well, how, how did that happen? And then you just get to this really beautiful tenderness and like shared humanity where you go, of course, like, of course, someone would react this way and go, oh, my God, I've 
And that's the other thing I realized is my sister is very disabled, right? Like there's the whole spectrum of disability and my sister's on the very disabled end. She's on the end that people aren't really aware of if they're aware of disability at all. And she's on the end where people are uncomfortable. They can't imagine her. They can't imagine having a brain of a one-year-old. They can't imagine living that life. You know, she's very, very triggering for people, at least again, of, to what I've experienced. So for me, I've really taken the opportunity to try to, to try to take up some of that educating people and giving them the space because they didn't have it in their schooling or in their families or in their communities to go, Hey, like you don't need to be afraid of this. It's okay. Like I can, I can tell you about it and you can have your feelings. I'm not going to make them wrong. They are so understandable. And then also I'm going to hold boundaries if like you're being, you know, harmful and you're unaware of your harm, which is often the case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So as Zachary mentioned, you wrote the one woman show Dangerous Giant Animals, which I saw and absolutely loved. And it very deservingly received um, five stars reviews. Um, so it started at the Edinburgh Fringe, and then you performed it in, in four different countries. And I was just wondering, um, were you expecting such a strong and positive reception? So no, I was not expecting um, it to go as far as it did. <laughs> None of my team were. Um, it was it was a crazy roller coaster. I I put it on. I mean, I guess again, crazy is relative because so many fringe artists do a lot crazier things. But it all came about within six months, including like a fifteen thousand pound crowdfunding campaign that I did in like three weeks. Wow. Yeah. While writing the show, while learning it. And there were many moments where we were like, we don't know if this can happen. And I just kept, I just kept focused on, I want to make this the best that it can be. And I have no idea if it's going to be a success. I just kind of didn't think about it because as, as the writer and performer, if you add that in the room, oh, you are just it is disabling. Like I use that word very carefully, but it kind of is, it just really, it can cut you down and, and more importantly, distract you, just really distract you to the results. Whereas when you're an artist and creative, I keep, I keep learning. I just need to focus on kind of staying in the womb of it, you know, creating this, this safe space for this art to come out and to start sprouting so that it can then go live out on its own in the world um, and be strong enough to handle whatever the world brings to it. And did people's reactions vary according to the country where you were performing in? in? So the moments I would say of like the hard hitting moments were pretty similar across the different countries and all those different audiences, you know, the moments of tears, I think were the same. Mm. It was really the laughs that were different. It was the moments of humor and lightness that were very different. Interesting. I do the show with an American accent. I've, I've written it like an American. The Brits laugh half as much as an American audience. Um, <laughs> it just doesn't resonate in the same way. Just like I saw Hamilton in London and I didn't see it in New York. Um, and now we can all watch it on Disney+. Plus. But in London, it really... It was it was really good, but I also felt like it missed a whole nother layer to the kind of just ingrained attitude of New Yorkers and of 
people of color in America, which of course now we're, we're really deep into that experience um, since George Floyd's killing. So I think for my show with the laughs, when I did it in New York city, uh, I had just finished fringe and I went to New York like three weeks later to do it. And all of a sudden people were laughing in the first like two minutes. And I was like, Oh, this is amazing. And definitely at different jokes, like at different moments. When I went to the Churchill war rooms, what was it like six months ago or no, nine months ago, I hadn't been and I'd wanted to go and I finally went. And I think for me, I really understood that the phrase keep calm and carry on was from that era. Might've been even from Churchill himself. I don't know, but that, all of a sudden landed for me what that phrase meant, um, where it came from and what it helped people live through. Mm. I feel that's connected to this. Whereas, you know, British audience will be reserved while watching Sarah Kane, but they will watch Sarah Kane. They can stomach it. They can be witness to it and they, they can keep calm and carry on while someone's sodomized on stage. Right. Right. (laughs) That's so good. Yeah. An American audience is like, Oh, like uh, what? Like they outwardly express their distaste and they're like, I can't watch that. Maybe. And this is general. Like I, I do know there is a definite edginess to America, but I think we're just really constricted by this, by this commercial structuring. You know, you guys are having, I know it's taken way too long, but you have an arts bailout. We don't have that. Yeah. We don't have an arts bailout. We don't have it built into our infrastructure and our government to value the arts, to integrate the arts. Like we did, and it's still hanging on by a thread, but it's really been just cut down and destroyed. So then it's had to go private. It's had to go commercial. Like you just don't, you don't have the freedom financially to take these risks here because you're so much more tied to the dollar. Yeah. Mm. Is my is limited understanding of it. I, I don't know the full extent, but I feel yeah. like that should be a show tied to the dollar. Great. Let's do it. <laughs> I saw that you recently um, were one of the writers taking part in Shakespeare Globes Theater's new writing festival, Note to the Forgotten She-Wolves. Yeah. I love that title. Yeah. So how did you get involved with that project and, and what was that experience like? Yeah, that was such a gift. Um, so Athena Stevens is an associate artist at the Globe and a friend who I met Um, my show was on in the same year that her show was on schism at the park, which she actually got nominated for an Olivier for. Wow. And so we became close friends and she curated this festival of new writing. And I was um, chosen to be one of the writers and it was amazing. All of a sudden I was like, okay, so I've written my own show, which again, you know, is, I guess a bit myopic. Like I wrote it, I performed it. It's about my childhood. Like that's a lot of Christina. And then I was asked to write a monologue for the globe as the next thing. I was like, Oh my gosh. Okay. Let's, let's get ready for that. (laughs) And yeah, that was, that was really powerful. And I went to every single night. I was lucky enough to be able to be free to go to all five nights of that writing series and to watch and experience both the femme voices and the non-binary voices of the writers in the festival and the the topics that were covered. And, Mm. but yeah, it was, it was incredible. I can't believe it was this year. It feels like it was another universe. Um, It happened in February. Oh, lucky, lucky that it was just before 
it all hit, which in a way, perfect segue into my next question about a very imperfect, tricky time is um, obviously COVID-19 has put a halt or affected so many people's artistic projects. And obviously kind of mental health became more important than being productive and putting things out there. Um, How has it impacted you personally and how have you been coping? So I feel, yeah, really lucky that my family is from California and we're on the coast. So I've been able to be in a lot of really uh, world famous nature and going to the beach, which would not have happened if I stayed in London for lockdown. And that's really helped my mental health, given the state of the world and how it continues to evolve and develop. I feel like nature has become my church. Like it's just something I can rely on Mm. and that I just look at and go, you've survived so much. Like you, you witnessed the Holocaust, you witnessed, you know, so many tragedies in the world, like, and you're still here. So I'm going to look to you. (laughs) So honestly, getting out in nature has been very grounding. Um, And I know that's not an option for so many people. And then personally, my mental health took um, a turn actually last summer at this time because I had finished my show. I'd done like 45 performances in nine months and I got seriously burned out. Um, like, yeah, it felt like I had broken a bone, but in my head, um, I just had this injury of burnout and kind of, uh, existential crisis that I was like, what is going on? Like, I can't just get back to the normal. But I don't know what to do otherwise. And yeah, luckily, I had a lot of support and resources and I got through it. So then when this all happened, and when I say this, like coronavirus, and then also being in America with the George Floyd killing and all the like injustices, protests, just all the current events around race right now yeah. and Black Lives Matter, not just race, but like for Black Lives Matter, I felt like I went through a bit of... I don't know, crisis last year. So I felt like I was in a really good position this year to be like, oh yeah, I know what happens. I know how to handle myself when the world falls apart, mm-hmm. which I'm so grateful for. Yeah, Because I think what I've seen is everyone being like, I don't know how to handle this. Mm. This is a topsy-turvy situation and I don't know how to, f- like how do you find your feet when you're upside down? Yeah. I think a lot of people in our creative industries have been saying, I know this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just working from home and not knowing when the next paycheck will come in. And mm. obviously, you seem to have gone through quite an intense period of, of personal uncertainty, which particularly prepared you. Like, especially like, I remember a film editor saying like, welcome to my life. Like, <laughs> All these remote working articles. I was like, Gah. where was this the past like five years? Like yeah. I was reinventing the wheel on my own. And so many of my friends and I were, and now everyone's in a similar boat. And that just on some level feels so good because it is that, that common shared humanity of, and, and people have said that to me, that's really helped throughout this whole thing. And we've said it to each other of, well, at least we're not the only ones going through a pandemic, you know, like we're all in this together. There is a value in that collective grief and suffering and struggle that we're not alone. Yeah. So obviously a huge part of your work is around accessibility and inclusion. Mm -hmm. 
And I know this is a huge, huge question, but I just wondered if you could briefly reflect on where the UK industry um, needs to be doing better. Yeah, that is a huge question. Thank you for asking it, because I think just on a baseline, that just needs to be asked. Like, it actually, it kind of doesn't matter what my answer is, because I'm connected to that community, but I'm not in that community. I'm not... I'm again, I'm not disabled. I'm not British. So I just, I kind of just want to let the question like take the podium and let us all sit with that because (laughs) I'm not trying to avoid an answer. I'm, I'm, I just think that is the answer. We need to ask that question. I think something that really, that really strikes me is we, we're quite good at asking the question, but when we're not very good at listening to the answer, and then we ask the question again, something that I, I found a lot in commercial work is there's a real reluctance to take really easy steps to make things more accessible, whether that's doing signed performances right. or or captioned performances, um, whether that's doing touch tours before a show. Yeah. Um, you know, we know we know what we have in our armory to start with, right? That's not that's never going to be the whole solution, but we know we know that that's that's a start. But there's still reluctance to even do that because it's seen as something it's seen as something additional that is maybe additional work. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say I think there's still way too much of a focus on how inconvenient mm-hmm. it is to change. Yeah. Yeah, I had an experience very recently about sexism more than uh, rather than racism. But, you know, that person was complaining about how inconvenienced he is by the spotlight being on men now and their behavior towards women. And it's just like this, if the mentality there doesn't change, if the focus is on how inconvenient it is, then how is the change ever going to occur? You know, I think that's such a good point that both of you are making. And there's so many things that we already, that we know, like we know there are better practices, but it's still easy for people to say, no, thanks. Yeah. No, I don't feel like it. Um, or no, we don't have the money. You know, I think about Edinburgh Fringe and how inaccessible it is mm. to wheelchairs or how just so many theaters in London are inaccessible to wheelchairs, mm-hmm. the tube stations. And it's not just wheelchairs. It's someone with a sprained ankle. It's someone with a heavy suitcase it's a mother with a stroller. It's a father with a stroller. Like, yeah, it's, it's this illusion that only certain people need this. And I don't. Mm. And I think that's again why I feel excited about this time is that all these illusions are breaking down of, well, I don't need that. And thankfully, the internet is making that just more and more clear that we are actually all interconnected. And no one like is unaffected by by other things happening. I also wondered, you know, obviously it's been, it's been a really, the last few years have been tumultuous mm. politically and socially, and we've touched on some of that. Mm-hmm. I just wondered if any sort of world events of recent years have particularly impacted you and impacted your work. Mm. And if if there are any that you feel that you would like to reflect on. Every day, all day. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of political events, so I was in drama school when the Brexit vote happened. So kind of from the moment I arrived, things got politically more crazy than they already were mm. more unexpected. And it's completely influenced me in my work. 
particularly influencing me right now, um, trying to engage in a lot of anti-racism work um, and unpack my white privilege and work on, you know, helping with the voting systems um, for November, even though I might, you know, be going back to London soon, I still want to work on it as an American citizen. So mm. I, yeah, I, I, I think I'm just, I'm hugely affected by it. And I wouldn't say that I create political work yet. Um, just cause I think that term is kind of thrown around and I don't, I don't know if I fully fit that niche, but I definitely want to, and I'm inspired by creating work that is socially impactful and tries to have an impact on the social consciousness. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What are, what are your hopes for the future and for the world that you're trying to create? My hope would be um, that we see the bigger picture. I'm, I am hopeful, even though the world is, a lot of things are breaking down and falling apart. There's so much opportunity in that. And I've really learned through my art to honor the full cycle of something when it goes from birth to life to death and really honoring the death cycle, letting things die, letting them decompose, and then letting the new earth come in. So my hope would be, yeah, for things to be seen, to see and be seen, and for us to just come together in that. Wow. Yeah. Um, Christina, I just have two final questions for you, if I may. I think you mentioned about being on a visa now, and I just wondered which one that was and how you went about it, because I think that might be really useful for anyone else in, in a similar position. I'm currently on the, I colloquially call it the artist visa, but it's technically the tier one exceptional promise visa. It's under the exceptional talent visa and it's like a subdivision of that. Mm -hmm. So I got that a year and a half ago and that's a five-year visa and it's uh, quite difficult to get and you have to build a portfolio and get approved and endorsed by Arts Council England. And I actually often talk to people about the process. I don't, I'm not qualified to lead people through it, but I have a whole like Facebook group that I started because people kept coming to me being like, oh, I heard you have this visa. Can you talk to me about what it is? Because mm. it's very intimidating. It's a visa that says you have to have a lot of press and awards like an Olivier, but you don't have to have one, but it'd be nice if you did. And so... <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. No pressure. It would be nice if we had Olivier's. <laughs> I know. Wouldn't that be nice? I would like that too. Um, and I don't have an Olivier. Yeah. Um, or a nomination. Yet. So... <laughs> Yet. Thank you. Yet. Um, yeah. So I then just started a group to kind of bring us all together. And so people can, you know, hearing this can feel free to reach out to me. I'm more than happy to connect them to others. There are lots of many, um, there are lots of paths to take to get to this visa. So as someone said to me, uh, definitely go for it. Like, don't be afraid of it. Definitely go for it. Mm -hmm. And then also what is the most British trait or thing about you, would you say, now that you've lived in, in London a while? Oh, and what has made you want to stay? Um, so I have a part of my personality that's a bit reserved and really identifies with the don't make a fuss. It could be that I'm a middle child. Uh, mm. It could be that, you know, my younger sister, like she doesn't have any inhibitions to her expression. So mm -hmm. I may be uh, compensated for that. But anyway, 
<laughs> it is who I am. So I really, one thing that was really funny when I first moved to London was how Londoners, I would say in particular, don't ask people to move out of the way. They just like hover and, <laughs> and they're quite offended if you are, if your senses are so dulled that you are not aware that someone is hovering behind you. Um, <laughs> it's like a classic example of don't make a fuss meets passive aggression to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I had come to London from New York City, right? Where like they will yell at you for like nothing. Like you, you, you walk in the subway doors and you're yelled at just for no reason at all for existing. So to move to a different city and have the city be like, you don't speak up at all, even for like a really understandable thing of like, I need to move faster than you're walking. You are in my way. I need you to move. Like they don't speak up for that. And I found that really interesting. Um, I, I kind of do that now. Actually, I'm more of a New Yorker and more of a Londoner. Like when I'm driving, I definitely have kind of taken on that like passive side of like, I'm just going to let this sort, sort it out and I'm not going to be aggressive. So I would say, yeah, I've kind of taken that on. And then my accents change just a tiny bit. I get a bit more of a lilt where people then think I'm Canadian mm. because I'm not um, as like open voweled American. Mm. I mean, I still love like baking and everything, which is like great British bake off. I don't know if that's a trait I've picked up, but it's been increased with the bake off with the bake off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the bake off just brings so much joy. Um, <laughs> and so why, why did you, oh, yeah. Why did I stay? Yes. Yes. So I've asked myself that a lot because I've had like three pivot points where it was like, do I apply for another visa? Do I invest more time and energy and money mm. into this process or do I just go home where it's just so much easier, right. but then I'd miss out on everything. And what I keep coming back to even now, like now that I've been in the U S for quite a few months now, so part of it's practical, you know, I, th I think about where our industries um, have these like headquarters. And to me, it's like New York, LA and London. Yeah. And I've lived in New York. I love New York. It's also a really tough place to live. It's a, it's just exhausting. Mm. I, I like LA, but I wouldn't want to live there right now. So to me, it was between New York and London always. Yeah. And I just love the pace of London. I love that it has all these little neighborhoods and I love that it's more low key and civilized. Like, <laughs> so part of that's just like practical lifestyle, everyday lifestyle. I love the pace of London a lot more and it kind of tempers my American, like hustling all about the results, like type a kind of personality <laughs> bringing it, like kind of gives perspective to that of like, okay, there's more to life than just like making money, but really it's been the art. It's, it's been the way that art lives and grows and the exposure of different types of art in London. So yeah, it's when I, when I think about, you know, making art in New York and what I'd be exposed to there versus London, I just, I love, I love expanding my palette and, and my exposure. And I feel so fortunate to have the opportunity because I know so many Americans that would love the chance to work in the UK and to be an artist in the UK and to see even the theater, right? Like just the cost of theater. Mm. You can get like, you can stand and see a show for like 
five quid, right? Yeah. Yeah. You don't have that in America. So I guess it's really my commitment to our industry as to why I keep getting visas and staying in London. (laughs) Wonderful. Awesome. Well, Christina, thank you so, so much for speaking to us today. Thank you. It's been a real sort of education for us. And it's just been also a real pleasure to hear you speak about so many subjects so eloquently uh, and entertainingly. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. And I hope that the conversations continue to be more inclusive. And thank you guys for starting this and, yeah, bringing awareness to, I guess, immigrant artists. Thank you so, so much. It was wonderful. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Migratives, a podcast produced by Woven Voices. Migratives is created and hosted by Nadia Cavell, Zachary Fall, and Ben Weaver-Hinks. Our music is by Guy Hughes, and our artwork is designed by Lucy Stapleton-Smith. To support the podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe on the platform of your choice. And to find out more about our work, Follow us on social media or check out our website, wovenvoices.org.